Israel's military says it has intercepted a rocket fired from Gaza. There has been no claim of responsibility from Hamas for the launch, but the IDF says its Iron Dome missile defence system had intercepted the projectile. And air raid sirens are sounding in Israeli communities near the border for the first time since the truce seven days ago. In the past few minutes, the ceasefire has officially expired. Meanwhile, UNICEF says the Palestinian territory is already a graveyard for thousands of children. It is estimated 6,000 children are among those killed in the Israel-Hamas war, although the death toll is impossible to independently verify. More than 1.1 million displaced people are now living in UN shelters. During the pause in fighting, UNICEF had been trying to get 30 aid trucks a day into the territory. James Alder works for the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund and has been travelling through Gaza. I asked him to describe the overwhelming mood there. And just a warning, some listeners may find parts of our conversation confronting. The collective darkness has seeped into this place. Um, there's just... I mean, I'm in the south. Yesterday I was in the furthest north on a convoy, so I've now a couple of times gone south to north and back. It's just a destruction and a desperation, almost death on the streets, if you will. I think it all just points to this war's relentless assault on on civilians, Lisa. You know, devastated, devastated apartment blocks after apartment block, home after home, crumbling concrete, twisted steel, toys, children's toys and clothes that have been blasted out of homes that are lying scattered on the on the floors. I walked into a man's apartment yesterday, halfway along the Gaza Strip as we headed with a convoy of UNICEF aid to the north. Um, his house was like a doll's house uh, at a three-floor floor apartment just with, with walls completely missing, some rooms completely intact. His daughter's room, you know, a pink doona cover and books on the shelves, toys on the shelves, completely intact. Unfortunately, his entire family had been having dinner at the time and that's where the blast had hit. He'd lost his entire family. Everyone had been killed. His apartment is basically unlivable, cannot be structurally sound. And, and so he's homeless and everyone in his apartment has been killed. That is not a unique story. That is a story repeated everywhere across this place. There has been a lot of talk about the children of Gaza, the number of deaths, the number of injuries, but you've been in a situation where you've been able to talk to some of these children directly. So what are they saying to you? They're traumatised, Lisa. There's no doubt. It's very dangerous, I think, sometimes to speak in big blankets about, you know, all children or this number. I think it's safe to say that every single child in the Gaza Strip is going to have some mental health issue and some of course are deeply traumatised. You know, the little 10-year-old boy who I saw on a stretcher with burns to 50% of his body and shrapnel wounds and these gentle blue eyes which I kept looking into until doctors told me they thought he was also also blind. Um, when your home is hit by a mortar or a shell, it's not one injury, it's a child, it's multiple, it's broken bones, it is it is shrapnel and of course it's burns. So, you know, there's just a deep, deep trauma. I, I sat with a little boy who's seven, Omar, Omar, when his family home was struck, his mother was killed, Omar's dad was killed and his seven-year-old twin brother was killed. Now, he still actually spoke. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. And, and I didn't get him to relive that. His auntie told me. I just asked what he was doing and how he was with friends. And he was able to share a few few, few short anecdotes. But mostly he would sit with his eyes closed. And I, 
And I asked his auntie why, why does Omar keep closing his eyes? And she just said he's terrified of forgetting what his mum and dad look like. He he can't bear that thought. So he keeps closing his eyes because that's where he can see them. He doesn't want to lose them in his imagination like he's lost them in his life. What happens to children who have lost all their family in Gaza? Who looks after them? Where do they go? Well, this is an incredible society in terms of the way they absorb people. You know, in terms, you know, there aren't as nearly as many displaced people, children as there would be elsewhere, given that so many children have lost parents, so many parents have lost children. This war is, you know, this war is de- devastating for children, but for for parents as well, as your listeners would imagine, losing losing a child. Um, we will be with them forever. But for those, you know, both, most of them just get absorbed into a broader family. It's the same with the displaced people. But we've hit a breaking point, Lisa. You know, everyone hosts someone. Most people host most, most multiple families. I spoke to a doctor in the north yesterday. He's hosting 90 people in his house. That's just what people do. That's not unusual. And so I guess while economically Gaza is not a rich place, it's a very rich place in community and in society. I've seen pictures during the ceasefire of young kids playing in the Mediterranean and it's like a tiny slice of normality amid all of this absolute carnage. I mean, what do these children do all day? There is no school, I presume. Do they go out and play? Do they feel safe to do that? What happens with education? It's a mix of what they do. You're so right some do i saw kids on a trampoline it's just a, such a a moment where you take a deep breath and 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 smile at that sense as you say and if they if they swim that's that's wonderful you know that's that's beautiful for them to, to have the, have those breaks but i speak to a lot of children and particularly adolescent kids 14 15 who will seek me out as i'm walking around a desperately overcrowded camp a camp where you know, again, middle-class families who've been reduced to living in a space the size of a double mattress with a family of five or six and a bit of firewood and under a, under a piece of tarpaulin. And adolescent girls will seek me out to tell their story and they just want to go home. They want to go back to their rooms. They have nothing to do. They don't have school. Ironically, most of them are sheltered in schools or sheltered in technical college where they should be learning or should be learning to be a, a nurse or an electrical engineer or you name it. They have very, very little to do. The kids you see quite often and are probably from this area. Most children here have been displaced. So, you know, they're a fish out of water. They're in horribly overcrowded camps. The rain is coming. The sanitation is poor. It's it's idle days and it's a lot of torment too. They wait biting fingernails to see will the pause continue or suddenly will they be back in the bombardments that they endured just a week ago. I want to ask you about that because I know you say you can't speak for every child, but in the conversations you have had, are they aware of that level of fear, the amount of death that is around them and the fact that, well, they are at risk every single day, every minute? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, because nowhere is safe. And your listeners might have heard that line. It's not a cliche. It's absolutely fundamentally true. There's, you know... That the where in the morning to get connectivity before I go to hospitals and centres, you know I will sit in meetings. That, you know a day, two days before the ceasefire, people were were meeting and uh, United Nations people and and a hundred metres away, a mortar hit and everyone's under the desks. No, nowhere is safe. There's been attacks absolutely everywhere. Every child is well aware of that. Every child is either displaced. Um, you know, seven eight hundred thousand children are displaced, or they've got displaced people living in their phone, homes, 
Many of them will have lost a direct family member or an aunt or an uncle. Many of them will have seen injuries, seen the wounds of war, the horrors that before when a, a mortar or a shell um, hits their family home or, or, or someone as they're trying to flee. So, yeah, they're, they're painfully aware of the nightmare they're living in. James, is there any hope or what hope is there? Yeah, there is because in the way that I met a girl who's a Fulbright scholar who from you know from who was back from her scholarship in the USA, or I met a, a young guy yesterday who had taught himself um, electrical engineering over the internet and taught himself perfect English over the internet and was you know repairing solar panels across the north. All things he'd learnt online, these children are everywhere. It's a young population. Um, so there is hope. There's an immense amount of repairing to do physically and psychologically. But the hope, I think, can only start to take root when people know they have a lasting ceasefire, not when in a, in a day or three they go may go back to, to living in a war zone. So, yeah, people are resilient. Children are, are incredible in that way. There's an immense amount that UNICEF and others will need to do here um, but it can't really start today. Right now, it's to stem the bleeding. Right now, it's water, food and medicine. The big job of repairing psychologically and to the, the physical structures really only starts when people know they have a, a, a genuine lasting peace. James, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you wish to add? No, I think that I think that's it. I mean, just only that... It, one of the reasons we just can't simply slide back into war beyond that people, as they say, are on ground zero now, they can't imagine falling further behind is, is, is just, is the medical system here. I go into hospitals, Lisa, and they are war zones. There is no other way to say it. I've helped a child off a bus who for three days hadn't had care from the north and was missing part of his limb. Horrible burns. His, his right leg below the knee was gone. You could smell the decomposing flesh. We got him into a hospital and three hours later, he was still on a hospital floor. That's with medical staff running tw literally 24 Seven. They are prioritising people in the way that no doctor should have to. You know, there's only one now hospital in the north that can really do battlefield trauma. In a maternity hospital where there's a birth an hour, they have six midwives. They need 20. So this place has been devastated and any return to hostilities, to attacks, um, will be catastrophic for people here. And that is James Alder from UNICEF, who was talking to me from Gaza. And in breaking news, Israel says it has resumed fighting with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. In a post on X, the Israeli Defence Force says that Hamas had opened fire at Israel, therefore violating the terms of the truce agreement.